Welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. I'm very excited to have Casey McGee joining me today. We're going to be talking about control. So Casey, welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home. Hi, Colleen. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you about control because I found your background really interesting. So before you were a dog trainer, and now you're the owner of Upward Hound in Star Prairie, Wisconsin, you work to prevent violence against women. Isn't that correct? Right. So can you tell me a little bit about that work? Yeah, it was, you know, I think before I became a dog trainer, that was probably the most profound work I had ever done, you know, personally, as well as professionally, we we looked at um, kind of battering uh, domestic violence and sexual assault as being something that kind of happens. It's a, it's a cultural phenomenon, not an individual phenomenon. And we worked, we we worked on institutional reform, basically helping you know, police departments and prosecutors' offices and so forth changed the way that they responded to violence against women so that the outcomes for women were better. Because the systems, those systems, they, they historically they weren't developed to kind of process this kind of crime. So, but then also on, on the side, I, I facilitated um, men's groups for, or, or batterers groups for men who had been convicted of sometimes misdemeanor, sometimes felony domestic violence crimes who had been court ordered to come to these You've probably heard of like anger management classes. Mm -hmm. Well, this is kind of like the modern version of what they used to call anger management. It's no longer anger management these days. It's kind of a re-education model or it's a facilitation model. So so I would facilitate those classes. And as part of the training for that, I had to think through the way kind of personally I use control. I use power and control in my life, in my private relationships, in my friend relationships at work. And it was just because there's there's very little. It's kind of... uh, you know, it's all it's it's all on a spectrum, basically. So, anyway, so I, I don't want to get too far down that road, but it was it was a fascinating kind of a personal transformation for me to not see it as there are those of us who are pristine and pure and happy and, and everything in our relationships, and then there are those who are evil and coercive, and you know, all they do is bad, or you know, and and that's not the experience of anybody. Everybody's human. They were along this spectrum, so right. it was a. It was a very transformative for me. And I think I brought that kind of perspective into dog training, these notions, these kind of notions of what are we, what do we allow ourselves to do as, as intimate partners? What do we allow ourselves to do in relationship with a dog in order to achieve the outcome that we want? How far are we willing to go? And, and do we want to kind of be conscious about that? So mm-hmm. I love your tagline, all carrot, no stick, no, no kidding. Stick. No kidding. I love that. I think it's just genius. So so let's talk a little bit about control. So we do have ideas of needing to control someone else, in some cases, our dog, or in the cases of your previous clients, their partners. Or our kids. Or our kids, right. So what are the things that make us feel like we need to control others? Well, you know, I... I always like, if, you know, if you think about it, like in, in behavioral analysis terms, I don't, I never thought of control as being a primary reinforcer. If you remember like primary versus secondary reinforcers, mm-hmm. I never really thought of it as being an end in and of itself. I feel like it as being a means to an end that I'm entitled to. And I know that that feels like I'm kind of splitting hairs there, but I remember, I think, I think a lot of kind of what that goes down is that People see, you know, batterers or people who use force or violence against their dogs or against their children as that they're power hungry or that they're they have they have this need to control. And I've never 
I've, I've never, that's personally never made that much sense to me. And that's not at least what I would see in men's groups is I see it as a, it's actually a means to an end. Mm-hmm. So it's a, an, and a means to an end that I'm entitled to because of who I am in this culture. So people own dogs, right? Parents own children for better or for worse. Um, men don't own women anymore but nonetheless the the big the long long history of men kind of being all of us have been taught that men are smarter and stronger and braver and you know all these different things and and we've incorporated that into our thinking culturally for for better or for worse and and if you're the smarter person in a relationship you get to make all the budget decisions because somebody's got to do it right and it should be the smarter person and if you're the if you're the less histrionic person, if you're the more objective person in a relationship, you should make all the hard decisions. You know, you know what I mean? Because you're you're the one who's the big thinker. You're the you're the one who's got your finger on the pulse of how the world comes together. And it should fall on you to make those decisions. It just makes sense. And then and then so having control over the people in your family is the way that you kind of make sense of the world. It's it's the way that it's the way that you hold your family together. You're the one who understands how the world is put together. So therefore, you're going to teach and show the rest of your family and make sure that they conform. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it, it's often sort of a little bit of fear, like, at least from my perspective, of that I, I need to try to control all these variables because there is so much going on. And because I have a path, yeah. and I can see the path if we would all just get on this path everything would work yes, out fine. That's right. That's right. Yeah, right. In all the research they've done on 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 men who batter there there are very strong gender notion gendered notions in their belief system and in their family of origin around around men are more this way and women are more this way and there's kind of a lot of thinking around who should do what kind of role. That's just one of the few you know, across all class and culture and societal lines, that's actually one of the very strong correlations is that there's a very strong belief about the difference between genders. I heard an idea recently that that was new to me. So I'm interested to know what, what you think about it. I heard someone say that one of our challenges in gender roles is that manhood is something that men are continually having to earn and that it can be lost. Whereas women aren't always trying to prove their womanhood. They just are. They're just, they just know that. Interesting. Yeah. It was an interesting thought. And I thought that could explain so much of the idea of competition and, you know, like, you know, don't be such a wuss. Come on. Men don't cry. All of these pieces of this idea Mm -hmm. that if you don't conform to society's idea of what male behavior is or should be, maybe you're not a real man. And so it's like, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what that makes me think of? And I'm not going to quote this properly, but I've learned so much of what I know from Jean Donaldson, being a graduate of the Academy. And one of the in she kind of tries to deconstruct this this notion of dominance between you know between mm-hmm. dogs and why humans are so obsessed with dominance like no, no matter how many times that's been kind of debunked mm-hmm. the pack leader thing like people still just gravitate to this notion yeah. it's like you know we just can't help ourselves and I think that she said that there is a correlation between your hierarch the the hierarchical structure of you as a person like where you are in the hierarchy your your status and your reproductive success so there's a strong correlation with with that of people going back through the generations and so it makes sense that we'd be that we'd be obsessed with hierarchy 
And so as a man, your your reproductive, I mean, it's just going to be, if I'm right, if I'm remembering this right and quoting right, which I'm probably not, but there's going to be some part of your DNA that just makes you crave being on top of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we're, we're humans. Of, I mean, being a woman, women aren't going to be immune from this either. Right, right. And so when we're looking at, at control, it's related to both power and trust. So the elements of those come in where, you know, you can, you can get a sense of control by kind of taking control and taking action, which is about power. But you can also have a sense of control if you trust others, like you know what they're going to do. Oh, interesting. And you have some certainty and security in the moment. Right, which relates to safety. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't really thought of that before, but I can see that perspective. I know what you mean. Yeah, I was thinking about that when when I was thinking about talking to you that that I think I think that when we're reaching for control, it it often is from a from a spot of a little bit of anxiety or a little bit of fear. Like something's not going to go well mm-hmm. if I don't manage all these variables. And in fact, in one of my uh, in one of my unleashed resilience groups, one of the women was talking about when she feels good, she's much looser and things go better and, and life is good. And when she's stressed, right. one of her main stress signs is she suddenly starts micromanaging herself and everyone around her. That's right, because she has to nail everything down. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that yep. control is her way of trying to feel better, but it doesn't actually make her feel better because she's just so busy trying to play whack-a-mole with her life. Right, right, right. yeah. That makes that makes very intuitive sense to me. I completely get that, yeah. I thought it was a really yeah. interesting idea when she shared it because I could see that, um, honestly, I can see yeah. that in my own life at times too, where I am right, just right. a little bit stressed and I think, well, I'll just take care of everything that I can take care of. Yes. All the pieces I can control, I will control. There, there is, there is control, and I, I don't mean to make too fine a point of it, but I think that it's really important to differentiate between what you're talking about. Like all of us experience this need to have control. We need to be able to have control in our relationships, have control over our finances, have control over our, whether or not our home heats in the cold. You know, we need mm-hmm. to have control over these things. But th- the extent to which we are willing to coerce, intimidate, or use pain or violence against others. Is, is permission that we give ourselves to have a certain amount of control, if that makes sense. So it's a little bit like like batterers are men with, with hard mouths, if you know what I mean. So there are, you know how they'll say in dogs, you know, all dogs will resource guard. Well, most dogs will resource guard to some extent. Some will do it with inhibited force and some will do it with uninhibited force. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit the equivalent of so it's not so much the urge to control it's to what extent like what will you do to get it and what will you do to keep it right that's what differentiates all the rest of us from people who batter in a relationship and that's what differentiates dogs with soft mouths from hard mouths and that's what differentiates like you know there are some people online when they get insulted they'll flame everybody inside right and then there are some people who when they get insulted they'll just quietly pack up and leave 
Right. So, so it's a, it's, it's to what extent are you willing or do you feel entitled to retaliate, to hurt others, to use pain against others? That's, that's what I think is the diff is the difference. It's not, I don't think control itself is the issue. It's what permission are we get or we give ourselves to achieve it. And I think that that's, I think that that's really a parallel in dog training as well. So it's not so much do dogs have the right to vote or do they do they have rights as animals? And all of us are going to have different opinions along these lines is what right do we have as humans against another species mm-hmm. living in our home? And then what kind of a relationship does that leave us with, if that makes sense? That makes great sense. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the willingness to use pain, intimidation, fear changes your relationship fundamentally. And this was this was something we would hear from men in groups uh, and, I, and I'll get back to dog training in just a second, but this is kind of what always gave me insight into dog training and also into myself as a dog owner back back when I did use force, is men in groups would sometimes have these epiphanies, and these were kind of like real moments of change where they would realize they might not have ever known fully that their wife wanted to be with them sexually. Their relationship was so governed by violence and coercion and manipulation that reflecting back on it, their hearts broke a little bit, thinking that they never really knew if their wives were fully there with them, consenting. They never really trusted that their, whether they didn't really know whether or not their children loved them or respected them out of fear and were secretly just afraid of them. They didn't know this. And it was heartbreaking to look around you and realize kind of what those choices have done to the relationships in your life. And those will kind of be very, I think that's way more inspiring for people to change than a, a criminal conviction, you know. And I, so anyway, but, but thinking back on that in my own life as a person who used to use, you know, force with my dog, I, it it was the only, it was the main tool I thought I had and, and it fundamentally damaged my relationship with my dog. And these days with my clients, I, you know, when, when I go into someone's home and they've been using a shock collar to handle counter surfing or using a shock collar to handle, you know, jumping up on guests, they don't, they're not thinking of themselves as, uh, you know, I need to have control over this dog. They're thinking this is a means to an end. And and that's not the kind of person they want to be, though. That's not the kind of relationship they ultimately want to have with their dog mm-hmm. because they adore their dogs or they wouldn't be hiring a trainer, right? right. They adore their dogs. And and they just need a, they need a way to to kind of figure out how to have a different kind of relationship with them. It's just not who they want to be. Right. And so let's look at it from that perspective. So if if in our human relationships, we're not showing up as who we want to be, you know, just a little bit more prickly or mm-hmm. more controlling or fussy or whatever, whatever it is that we're doing and thinking about it from this perspective, what would be a suggestion that you have to, to try to help mentally reframe some of that to have kinder and gentler interactions with coworkers and clients and other humans that we encounter? Oh, that's a good question. I don't really know. I think that, uh, you know, personal change, I'm very good at talking about other people about personal change. Wow. You know, I don't, you know, for me at least, and maybe this is just kind of the way I put myself together is I'd have to think through kind of, I, I get very kind of intellectual and I start thinking through. So, you know, I did this to somebody and what, what gave me the right to do it or, or not really that's, but like, I'm, what made me think that I could do that, that it was okay for me to do that. And then kind of trying to deconstruct that in my brain is no longer giving myself permission to do that. So 
I don't know if that makes sense. It, it's a it's a matter of identifying, you know, what I did was was hurtful. I don't want to do that anymore. And then thinking through, but but why is it so compelling in that moment? Why do I feel like I can give myself permission to do it in that moment and then not give myself permission to do that anymore? So basically just kind of like changing my own contingencies, changing my own rules inside. I no longer have permission to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I think I think I could be a strange creature. I'm not sure that other people would think of personal change this way. Like, what about you? Like, I'm sure because we've all had this experience of we've done or said something that we really regret, right? Right. So, like, how how do you go about reworking that in your head and thinking I'm not going to do that again? How do you? Um, it's I, hard. It, it is hard, and and that's the whole point of Unleashed at Work and Home is we wrestle with the hard stuff and figure out where, yeah. where we figure out. For me, I, I try to think about, well, what do I wish happened? And then and try to reverse engineer from there. So, okay, that result was not what I wanted or intended, but that's what I got. Well, what could I do differently? But I love your idea of really looking at what may have inspired me to act that way? What gave me permission in my head to act that way? Because I think it's a really, it's a deeper level. It's a deeper level to look at it that way. And don't we have to also give ourselves the tools to do something different? Like, you know, if you think about creating a, you know, a DRI or, a, you know, an incompatible behavior for a dog who's under stress to do something different you have to practice in a, in a non-stressful environment. So for us as well, right? Mm-hmm. If I want to quit, you know, it used to be that when my dogs would argue or fight, I would scream or yell and kick out of fear and adrenaline and right. And if mm-hmm. I want to give myself different tools and different ways of responding to that, that's calmer and, you know, more productive, I need to practice that out of that stressful context. So I wonder if that's a part of it, too, is kind of very deliberately giving ourselves an alternative behavior and and putting it into our repertoire deliberately. So not it's not theoretical anymore, but we actually have to practice it somehow out of context yes. so that we're fluent at it when the context gets tough. Yes. And that's actually, that's so funny that you say it that way, because that's what the Unleashed Resilience Groups are all about. Because it's, really, yeah, it's a chance for us to get together and explore like, this technique and then practice it in a small group situation right. and go, that felt really awkward and weird to me. Or, oh, I loved that right. one. So that we've tried it on, you know, basically in the dressing right. room and said, how how can I use this? And then now that I've had a chance to practice it a little bit, now this week I'm going to try it in real life and see how it goes and build from there. So it's interesting how you're saying it from that perspective, because we really do need to find safe ways to build and strengthen new behavior patterns. Because if we feel uncomfortable doing them, then we just go back to our fixed patterns. And that doesn't get us where we want to go. Right, right. Yeah. So Tell me a little bit about the the parallels you see between your work with dogs now and your previous work. I think the most fundamental thing is kind of a, a approaching the work with a with a very strong sense of equanimity, being that there's there's not me who I'm always compliant and I always I always do what I'm supposed to and I always floss my teeth and I always pay my taxes on time and I always do my homework and then clients out there who are non-compliant and you know uncooperative there's not there's not like a big difference between me and other people there's not a there's not a big difference in terms of how there's not a big difference in terms of how much we love our dogs and how much 
and, and kind of who, who we want to be as people in the world, um, how we want to be perceived by others. I mean, there's just, there's so many parallels between me and, you know, the families I work with. We're, we're all just the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in batters groups, the facilitators were very, very much positioned that way as well. There's, I had done things in relation, I had never used violence against somebody in a relationship, but I had done and said hurtful things and that's all on a spectrum. So, you know, so, so, so really being able to kind of look at that, it's just, it's really there, but for the grace of God, you know, so it's, Mm -hmm. there's a kind of being able to, there's not an us and them really out there. It's really just, I happen to have an education and I kind of have, I happen to have I happen to have different tools and, you know, let's try this out. I know you want change or you wouldn't have called me. So, um, you know, so I guess the difference is that my clients aren't court ordered to work with me. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be funny if they were court ordered dog owners groups? No, that wouldn't be funny at all. It wouldn't be productive. (laughs) No, but you'd be the perfect one to run them because you would know how to, to set it up and get it started for that from that perspective, because they would come in feeling very judged. And and yeah, you're right, right, right that none of us has made it through without saying or doing something that we wish we hadn't. Right. And with our dogs or our children or our partners or. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, something else that I really, really learned from my other from my other work is that the language we use to describe another person or another dog is really, really key. So men who batter will oftentimes use, they'll use really, really degrading language in their relationships. And, and so this seems like a bit of a leap, leap, but bear with me. In our relationship with our dogs, I think that the parallel there is describing dogs as being stubborn Mm -hmm. or retaliative or spiteful. Was it Patricia McConnell, I think, who said that, isn't it funny, we, we don't really understand dog emotions, but when we, when we try to, um, when we're guessing, we always guess the worst yeah. human emotion. Like, don't guess, you know, generosity and forbearance and patience and compassion. We guess this whole negative pile of stuff, yes. right? And, I, and when we see dogs as being retaliative or stubborn, it leads us to a different kind of a solution or a different kind of an action. Usually it's that we want to break them in some way. Right. Mm -hmm. Then, um, and it's the same thing in describing partners, like the language that we use to describe dogs. And so I'm always really, really paying attention to that with myself and with my clients is how are we conceptualizing of this problem? Because how we conceive of it is going to lead us to different outcomes, you know? So I don't correct people and they're thinking about it, but I'm just always trying to reframe in terms of what the dog's motivation is, you know, which yes. um, is also something that we learned from Jean. But it's just kind of like the importance of language, the importance of language and how we talk about it is. It's really object. important. And that that reminds me of a veterinarian that I was talking to who said that in her practice, the policy is we talk kindly about owners whether there's anyone here to hear or not. And she said she came into the break room one day and heard one of her nurses just bashing an owner, just like, what were they thinking? Why didn't they do a better job with their dog? Why did they wait so long? And she said, thank you so much for your service. But we don't Mm. do that here. And this was not this person's first, so it wasn't like a one and done. But she was like, this is not 
our practice. We don't do that. And so when you're talking about the language and how that can harm relationships, she said she realized that it wasn't just can the clients hear, it's is this occurring right. in my practice? Even in the break room, language was important. That just gave me goosebumps. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so powerful. A friend of mine is a Montessori teacher and has been, you know, for as long as I've known her. And it occurred to me for the first time a couple of years ago when I asked her about it, she was the only teacher I had ever met who didn't complain about her students. And she said, no, we don't do that in our school. And I'm not, I, don't, I actually don't know anything about Montessori. I don't know if that's a regular practice or if this is just her school or what. But like even students who are very behaviorally challenging Mm -hmm. she's there's no complaining there's no there's none I mean it's all and it's just in it I think she said that it it doesn't it helps her from kind of getting dragged down around Mm -hmm. the issue you know it kind of it keeps her kind of focusing positively and and yet there are some though that who there I think that some who really feel like venting is a is a is a you know, it's a, it's a therapeutic thing for professionals to be able to do. And, and I'm, you know, I, and the, and so the jury for me is out on that, but, but I think so too, for me personally, the way the language that I use absolutely changes the way that I, the way that I treat people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I do agree too, that, that there can be a time and a place for venting, but you may have to decide that that is your outside of work time if you work in this particular vet's practice yeah. or whatever um you know <laughs> that's right because yes there is a, there is a value to that but but venting also can get to the point where we're just rehashing the same stuff yeah. and and then that's where we get the us versus them why are they like this exactly. why are they doing exactly. this why are people so stupid kind of stuff and and we do see that go in certain groups where it becomes a yeah. just sort of an entrenched idea I wonder if that's anathema. I wonder if that brings up compassion fatigue. I don't know that much about compassion fatigue, but I know that that's something that you've really thought mm-hmm. a lot about and paid a lot of attention to. Do you think there's a connection there? I do think there's a connection there. I think, I think it goes both ways. I think when we're starting to experience compassion fatigue, it's almost self-protective to say, "Ugh, yeah, them, yeah," you know. Yes, but it's it's a, it's a difficult situation because we. We do encounter a lot of people who don't know the things we know. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves that our, you know, friendly neighborhood plumber could walk in our house and go, I cannot believe you have the settings on your pipes on the wrong setting or you haven't insulated them properly. And I'd be like, I don't don't know anything about that. Well, how could you not know? Everybody knows this is important. You could Google it. Well, that's what we do to people about dogs all the time. We're like, you should know this. You should know. But yeah, it does. It I think language is a big piece of that and and really looking at that people are trying their best with what they know and what they have available in their own bandwidth at this moment. And that ties into what you were saying about the control parts where, you know, these these people were doing what they did because they felt entitled, but also because they felt maybe even responsible to to lead or have an outcome. You know, it needs to be this yes. way. It should be this That's right. way. And violence is a regrettable but necessary evil. You know, it's just a, it's, I'm, you know, this hurts me more than it hurts you kind of thing that parents used to tell their kids mm-hmm. before they spanked them. That's, you know, very much, uh, it's, I think if, if I ever catch myself thinking that I'm going to know that's a red flag, I'm giving myself permission in that moment to do something that I don't, I don't think I should be doing, you know, it, that thinking, giving yourself permission by thinking this is a necessary means to an end. This is a necessary evil. That's for me, like I've got, 
there's a red flag around that. Yeah. Well, and then they say like any sort of active aggression is reinforcing to the aggressor. So you yell at your children to knock it all off and it feels so good for you. And you're like, whew, relief that it becomes a little bit like, okay, next time this might be my go-to because it felt good to me in that moment. It did not actually improve my relationship with my children or make things better in the long run, <laughs> but right. felt awfully good in that moment. Um, I know. <laughs> you get that zing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we are wired internally that way. Like we're very aware of what our bodies are doing. That zing matters. It does. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Right. So um, just from the perspective of like locus of control, things I can control versus things I cannot control, um, what would you say are some of the things that people should look at that are within their control? Like if you're going to focus on the things you can control, where where is your circle of influence in your opinion? Yeah. And do you mean like in relationship like with our partners or like – with our dogs? What are you thinking? I think you can go in any direction you want to, because really it's all about just helping people learn new things. So whatever makes you happy. Okay. You know, it brings me, we were talking earlier off before we started about that really great video about consent and a cup of tea that you had Mm -hmm. seen. And if anybody hasn't seen this, you've got to Google consent cup of tea. It's this really amazing little cartoon kind of a thing that outlines it, it compares consent in, in a sexual relationship to making somebody a cup of tea. So in this, if you use that model, the control that you have is you can ask someone if they want a cup of tea, right? And, and we do this with dogs. We offer them a contract. I'd like to file your nails. Would you hand me your paw for a piece of chicken? And they'll say no. Okay, well, can I touch your paw for a piece of, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. like you do this kind of constant negotiation. What can I do? And that to me is is the amount of control that we have is 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 the is the control over kind of figuring out what we want and and forming kind of like these formal and informal contracts with other people around our behavior and their behavior like here's what I'd like to do what would you like to do and here's what I'm going to offer you for this and 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 being willing to take no for an answer we talk about dogs needing to have this skill all the time with each other I know that this seems like I'm not talking that much about control, but for some reason it feels connected to it me. This, like that's, that's really the extent of the control I have is, is mm-hmm. I get to say, you know, I'd like you to walk next to me on a leash without pulling. What do you think? I'd like to offer you this for that. Is that, is that worth it to you? Is that enough to change your behavior or not? Right. Which, which puts us in, the, in a position of being uh, persuasive influencers. So we don't, we don't decree. And strategic. Yeah. We're not decreeing this will happen, but we're saying, wouldn't it be awesome if, and showing you how awesome that could be. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think those are awesome suggestions. And I'll definitely link to the cup of tea in the show notes so that people can find that easily. And beware in advance of the, they swear. So beware in advance if there's some, Ah. pardon their French. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Okay. But thank you for the warning on that. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, where could they find out more? Well, Upward Hound, my dog training business has a website, of course, upwardhound.com. But anyone who's an aspiring dog trainer should absolutely check out the Academy for Dog Trainers, where I'm happy to say I provide a supportive role. Yeah. So and that's academyfordogtrainers.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, Casey, to talk to me about control. This has been a really interesting discussion.
Me too. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thanks. Do you want to feel stronger, happier, and more resilient? Let's face it, who doesn't? Check out the new Unleashed Resilience Skills Groups. They're online, small group sessions that are guaranteed to improve your outlook on life. Visit ColleenPilar.com for more info.